You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this is going to be part three of our large format vivarium series. If you recall, we started off with part one. I had Bill Rodman on. We talked about the dynamics and some of the engineering things that go into making a really, really large tank. And in this case, we talked about the Orinoco Grande, which is, a, well, it's a, pretty, it's a really big tank. It's a six foot by four foot by two foot. And there are some unique challenges that go into building a tank that size. So if you had a chance, go back and catch that episode if you didn't already. Uh, we laid the foundations. We discussed some of the materials and whatnot. And uh, last week was part two. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Brandon Willis. Brandon's been on the show before. And we talked about some of the ways that we might scape this tank. I mean, the hardscape, wood choices, different materials. We talked a lot about the different foam methods and whatnot. And um, really just how we would go, we would want to scape and lay out this hardscape for such a really big tank in order a way that it would give us a nice uh, nice uh, starting point to start planting and whatnot. And as far as planting, that's going to be tonight's episode, part three. I've got Alex Mankey on, and I know we, we've been kind of really excited for the past couple of weeks to touch on this topic. And we're going to talk about what goes into planting a really, really large tank. And uh, we're going to talk about larger plant choices and how having plants in a bigger tank, uh, you know, affects growth and things like that. So, if you've got your little 18 by 18 by 24, the end result with the plants is going to be very, very different from what we've got to, uh, what, we, what we're discussing tonight. So we're going to get into all that. But of course, before that, thanks everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Great way to support the show. Uh, nice five-star review with some comments goes a long way. Helps me get the show out there to a wider audience. And of course, thank you everyone who listens on Spotify. I've got a great five-star review on Spotify. I appreciate that as well. And for everything else, check out the link in the link tree. It'll take you to the merch shop. I've got merch. I've got t-shirts and whatnot. And I've also got a link for Panamanian frog conservation. If you want to support Panamanian frog conservation, specifically for Adelopis Zetecki, uh, check out that link. And uh, if you're interested in making a donation, make a donation. And uh, if you're interested in purchasing an in-situ ecosystems vivarium, anything that we talk about tonight or anything we talk about in this series, whether it's the Orinoco or some of the smaller models, click on the link in the show description. I'm an affiliate of In-Situ Ecosystems, so if you make a purchase through that link, you'll get a 10% off your purchase, which is really a great way to save on a quality of vivarium. Like I said, you get 10% just by being a listener if you make the purchase through the link. So other than that, we're going to get into it tonight. We're going to talk about plants. We're going to talk about going big. So let's get into it. So Alex, welcome back. How have you been since we uh, since we spoke last? Hey, Dan, it's uh, great to be back on the show for a third time. Um, it's been pretty good. We've been really, really busy. Um, basically, the projects we've been working on at Frog Daddy have been many, but the main one was relocating the plants back to the back part of the facility instead of in the front part. So for many of you that have been there, you know my facility is divided into two kind of two sections, the live section and the dead section. Um, <laughs> that's what I used to have it divided into. Um, but now we've basically moved the bugs, so all the fruit fly production and all of the plants to the back room with shipping and manufacturing so that the frog room is really, really open and it allows for new infrastructure to be put in place and the collection to expand without having to move everything 
15 more times. So it was a really big, really big project. Uh, we're still kind of in the middle of it. We're getting toward the end. Uh, and then once we're done moving everything, reorganizing, then we're going to be getting climate control systems in place in the back by the dead of winter. <laughs> so, yeah. That sounds pretty cool. You, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the, the, the plant room and that, that kind of just brought up something that I, I, it just came into my mind now. So the, the focus of the show is going to be planting a, a really, really big vivarium, something that's much bigger than what many people would have in their homes or whatnot. But you have a whole plant room and how do you have that arranged? And like, how do you, well, you know what, tell me, like, what's, what's a plant room? How do you, how do you run a plant room? What do you have in there and how does, how does everything grow? So I guess we could start from like the, I mean, you can start from the very beginning. I mean, in the beginning of Frog Daddy, I had no plant room uh, and I grew everything in enclosures, kind of like many of the obvious do. Then I kind of graduated to one of those small grow tents. Uh, I think it was, I want to say like six foot by four foot by three foot or something like that. Um, and it was, it was pretty good, but you know, you, you quickly realize that you're going to run out of space. So I kind of took it from there. When I got the facility, I ended up doing shelves with kind of like Emily Freebird does. I did shelves with like plastic domes, uh, kind of inverted salad bowls. And then I also used, uh, these little mini greenhouse kits from, greenhouse megastore and god we had probably 70 or 80 of them and watering them was just kind of a nightmare right so i you know thought to myself okay this this really is labor intensive you know we could grow hundreds and hundreds of plants but it would just take forever you know you'd have to take them all off the shelf you'd have to pop off the plastic covering then you have to do your maintenance and then you put it back on and just that you know, constant taking it off, putting it back on, taking it off, putting it back on. It just got crazy. So I graduated from there to a Vivo Sun. And my first Vivo Sun was actually pretty big. So it was the 120, 120, 80, which is like a 10 foot by 10 foot by six and a half foot or seven foot, something like that. Um, pardon my math. Uh, but yeah, it was fantastic. As soon as I moved to that, I was able to do the maintenance uh, really easily. The humidity stayed up really well and we could water it without having, you know, you could just take a hose and drench everything down and it would be fine. So it cut down the amount of time it took to do plant maintenance. I mean from maybe two hours down to 15 minutes. So then I got six of them. So I have six of them now and one tent that's half that size for bromeliads, uh, that I crank pretty much replicating full sun. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what that looks like. <laughs> How large do you let your plants grow? Do you just kind of let cuttings establish to a point where they're ready for sale or do you have anything that grows excessively large in that space um i have a mother plant what i call like a mother plant vivosun and that contains my large 
plants that I haven't cut. So my large aeroids that are anywhere from, you know, one foot to three feet tall, uh, give or take, you know, some of those plants can get huge. Most of the Vivo Suns are propagation tents. So we kind of cap things. I mean, idealistically, we would cap things. I still don't have a dedicated employee for the plants. I used to, but that kind of went south. Um, and so I'm in need of another one. So a lot of those plants are getting out of control. But typically, you want to stop them and, and, and have them at a sellable size that, you know, will fit in a bag or fit in a box really easily. You can ship to people, and it's not going to be you know, an insane shipping box or, you know, something like that. What about, um, like one of the things I'm always curious about is when you have a large number of plants, especially if something that's in your case, you know, you're, you're selling, how do you prevent issues like thrips or, um, you know, mold or like, how do you, how do you keep the plants safe from anything else that might come in that might potentially compromise them? Uh, you don't, um, no, it's just, it's, no, it's just, uh, it's a great, it's a great topic. I actually have, I think two live videos on Instagram going into preventative care and treatment for all sorts of issues. Uh, I love that topic because I've dealt with every pest under the sun, sometimes at the same time. Um, and so yeah, I have a whole tent dedicated to quarantine. So I actually lied. I have seven of those 10 by 10 tents. And one of them is a quarantine tent. So the functionality of a quarantine tent is whenever you get new plants, you put them in there. We actually do treat those plants with pesticides, herbicides, uh, oxidizers. Uh, I have everything. Uh, <laughs> I can... Uh, I have industrial strength oxidizers that I've used before. Um, you just have to make sure that the half-life is appropriate and to make sure that you are not putting those with animals, right? Because that's that's the main concern is taking it from a quarantined plant that is infected, curing it, and then processing it in a way that it's going to be ready for sale in about six months again and not have any traces of, you know, chemical residues or anything like that. So we do our initial sprays first. And then in our actual tents that we have stuff for sale, of course, we do not do that. Um, we purchase uh, a Swirsky eye mites mostly from Arbico Organics, and that is a predatory mite species that does track down thrips. It tracks down white fly larvae, and we can combat uh, soil-borne pests with beneficial nematodes, which actually dissolve in water. And we use our spray bottles to coat the soils, uh, and that can take care of the soil-borne stage of thrips uh, and some of the other pesky things like fungus gnats and other other pests like that. So most of it is actually preventative care. Uh, if we see anything like aphids or something that's actually on the plant, then we do take that plant to quarantine. We check all the adjacent plants. Pretty much you can assume 
that the other adjacent plants are in fact infected. So we may have to shut down certain parts of VivoSuns. So there's always this constant rotation going on. but generally, once you have everything established and you're doing your due diligence with quarantine practices, you don't really get that many pests, uh, or at least you shouldn't, because you know you're you're doing your due diligence. <laughs> now, if we if we slip up or we're not paying close attention, which has happened in the past, it can be catastrophic. I had a bacterial blight. Uh, take about $50,000 worth of rare begonias last year. Uh, And that definitely uh, taught me a good lesson or two about paying attention. That sounds pretty intense to lose that many plants. I mean, obviously it was a business person too. That's gotta be, uh, that's gotta be a big hit. Yep. (laughs) Still hurting to this day. Well, (laughs) that's, that's part of the experiences, you know, like on this show, I, I mean, I always like to talk about the things that can be potential problems and issues and whatnot, because I mean, this is, this is part of it. I mean, if you don't know how this stuff works, you're not going to be able to deal with it when you have a problem. How did, how did you learn all this? I mean, did you have like a botanist come in as a consultant? Did you just figure this out by yourself? Like, how did you, how did you figure all this out? So a lot of it was trial and error, but before that, uh, I was actually going to get my master's in botany. So I have been interested in plants longer than I've been interested in frogs. And I've also been keeping plants longer than I've been keeping frogs. So I've been keeping plants since I was pretty much, a, I would say, 12 or 13 years old. And uh, the first group of plants I got into were actually orchids. So in college, I actually had a very sizable orchid collection um, and I've scaled back since then, of course, because <laughs> anything I can't grow in tanks, I'm kind of like, eh, you know, am I really going to keep that? Am I really going to produce it without a greenhouse or without a lot of staff or with a lot of space? So I, I've really, I've diversified my collection, but I've also decreased the amount uh, of orchids that I've had. But I've been into horticulture and botany for a very long time. So I guess it did start quite early on. So I I was fully intending on going to graduate school for plants. Uh, And then plant genetics came around and uh, I decided that was not going to be what I wanted to do (laughs) because, you know, that's part of botany. And uh, that's that part scared me. (laughs) I mean, if you're going for a career in botany, like, for example, like I know certain people who go into science, you have to go into an area where there's money, obviously, because you want to make a living. Yeah, that was the other thing. <laughs> and I've heard that, like, if you're a botanist, you're kind of like, I don't know if you get into, like, agriculture or yeah. like, stuff it like that. It would probably be ag. It would be pest management, uh, pest solutions. I, I mean, there's there's, rare, you know, you, you want to research stuff. Most botanists get inspired to do botany by falling in love with a group of plants or even just plants in general. But the reality is the same with a lot of biologists where, yeah, you may like poison frogs, but are you going to be able to survive on that? And the answer, I mean, to to the most general sense is no, because there are not jobs that circulate around 
you being interested in a certain animal or a group of plants, uh, they have to have some kind of, uh, some kind of property that makes them useful for humans or, you know, you have to be a lead researcher uh, and be involved postdoc or something like that. So, yeah, it, it became kind of me looking at plants and being like, okay, do I just enjoy plants or do I like really, really want to study them? And I, I started leaning more toward, I just enjoy plants. And I'm going to study ecological systems and evolutionary systems to kind of get a more broad degree. And I actually got the most broad degree possible <laughs> so that they offered. So go figure. You know, I couldn't I couldn't really make a pinpoint decision on what I wanted to do. Well, I mean, you've made a career out of both frogs and plants, so you you definitely <laughs> you definitely you, you beat the odds, which is which uh, should make you happy. I so, sure did. Yeah. No yeah. degree needed. <laughs> so, I mean, we talked about greenhouses and whatnot. And I, when I go to a, up here where I live, we have, uh, it's called the planting fields arboretum. There's actually a few arboretums up here. And the arboretum has a large greenhouse, which is dedicated to tropical plants. There's, there's all sorts of, there's, there's pitcher plants in there. There's all sorts of stuff that I have no idea what it is. They have a section that's just for succulents. And I look at the way these plants grow in this large space, and I think to myself, well, a lot of the plants that I have at home, especially the ones in my tanks, they don't take off. They don't They don't look the way that they do in the greenhouse. And I don't mean like they, they look like they're dying. I mean that they don't, they don't seem to take off to their full potential. I mean, in your opinion, like the average size tanks that we're keeping frogs in the 18 by 24s, the, even the 36 by 36, are we kind of limiting the potential of what our plants could grow to in terms of size and, and what else? Yeah, I really do think that is the case. Um, that we're really limiting uh, the growth, especially for like aeroids and stuff, because they, uh, they have heterophilic and heteroblastic changes. Um, during their growth habits so like when they when they start shingling or when they start climbing and they're getting more and more light they go through physiological changes and the leaf structure uh, can can actually change pretty drastically a great example is philodendron uh, lupinum and philodendron lupinum is it's juvenile what's called like juvenile foliage has a like a heart shape pattern and then when it gets to its uh, larger form i mean i guess it's it's not a larger form but just when it gets bigger its heart shape gets way more drastic the lobing uh basically to the petiole gets very very large so it's it's incredible to see that kind of change in just the same plant, in the same leaf structure. Uh, but you're not really going to get to see that in a vivarium. So when I sell things to people, uh, at least in person, uh, sometimes people ask me, oh, will this, you know, get bigger? You know, that, that's a great question. They, they always say that. Will this get any bigger? And I'm like, well, if you mean leaf size, Yes, it will get bigger, but not in vivarium culture. So I kind of just like 
I, I coin I didn't coin the term, obviously, but you know, I have a coined term like vivarium and terrarium culture so that people understand that this plant would be looking different if it was in a different habitat. So if I had grown it outside in Miami in the sun, then that philodendron would look completely different than it does in my 181824 exoterra. So yeah, I, I do think we limit plants by putting them in small boxes. Yeah, absolutely. It seems to be one of those things that occurs, I guess, naturally or, or, or not naturally. I mean, the example, the, the example, cause my, my plant knowledge is, is remedial at best. I'm, <laughs> I'm terrible, but uh, I know fish. And I mean, where I live, we've got some native brook trout, which are really, really small. They live in this really, really small spring Creek in, which is actually kind of an urban area. But then, like some of the stock fish and some of the wild fish in larger bodies of water, I mean, these things get huge. And it seems to me it's almost like the same thing with plants. Like, what's the biological process that limits plants to stay smaller and more compact in smaller tanks as opposed to, say, like a, a larger area, like an open-air greenhouse or something like that? What's what's the process behind that? Um, It can be... It could be a lot of things. Uh, I mean, I, I would assume, this is just me assuming, that it's mostly due to light intensity. Um, I mean, if you look at, like, uh, heteroblasty in general, so heteroblasty is defined as the significant and abrupt change in form and function that occurs over, like, the plant's lifespan. So heteroblastic plants that uh, have heteroblasty uh, attached to them or whatever. That's, that's not a good way to say it, but um, basically like those philodendron I was talking about, they change their functionality. And most of it is due uh, to light intensity, but um, it, it's, it's through evolution. So it's an evolutionary adaptation so that when they get to a certain light intensity, then they can grow bigger and absorb even more light. So, um, yeah. So when you're, you're in a tank, you know, we usually have like a little led light, right? You're, you're not going to get the same intensity as like the sun. <laughs> I mean, obviously we know this, um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of intensity missing there. So, so that's just one thing. Uh, but there are other environmental uh, factors that go with it. But I would say in our tanks, we get to see uh, plants that do stay in their juvenile foliage for the most part. And I think that's actually pretty cool uh, in its own right. Uh, and I think if they, if, if plants did, heteroblastic plants did do what they do, in our tanks, I mean, you wouldn't have room for it, you know? <laughs> so it would be kind of, it would be kind of frustrating actually, if you think about it. Uh, Cause some of those big philodendron leaves get huge. I mean, they, they can be multiple feet long. And uh, last time I checked the, the tallest tank that is sold commercially, that's front opening is 36 inches high. So you'd have, you'd have a problem right off the bat. And we actually see that problem all the time 
when we plant anthuriums in our tanks, which we'll we'll get into, you know, as we go through our questions here, uh, we'll get into why planting large plants in tanks can actually be disruptive to what we're trying to do. Interesting. Yeah, we we talked off air a little bit about that, and I I was always under the impression that if you give something more space and more nutrients or whatever, it'll it'll grow larger. But um, I mean, the the thirty six by thirty six is is big, but we're talking about four feet by six feet, so we're talking like like more than double that. But I mean, from what you were telling me is, it's not necessarily larger plants that will accommodate this um i mean what what are your well i'll tell you what before we get into plant choices and whatnot how do we want to prep this i mean we've we've done our scape we've got our 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 wood our 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 hardscape everything like that that's set up but what do we really need to do to prep this before we plant it so that we get success um so i think the first thing you'd want to do it's all about lighting at this point uh, I actually have a tank. It's six, you know, six by two by four. Um, it's exactly the size of my PVC tank. Uh, so I can relate to this very well. <laughs> um, my big display tank is exactly the same size. So the first thing you'd really want to do is check your lighting and make sure your lighting intensity is pretty good. Uh, you don't want too, too bright, right? We don't want to like blast the top of the tank with light because that's going to prevent plants from growing too. So we have to find an intricate balance between a bright enough light that's going to hit the bottom of the tank, but that's not too bright that it's not going to scorch the plants up at the top. So there is that to consider. Um, and since you said you had your hardscape done, that w light placement is going to depend on what your hardscape looks like. So if you have three walls, let's say you have the background done, <clears throat> you have your left side done and your right side done, you would want to make sure that you have enough light going down to the bottom. So without repeating myself too much, you would have some strip lights up top. And then sometimes people and myself included like to supplement with like floodlights so I used LED floodlights that are really powerful in certain positions where there are uh, kind of like overhangs with the wood uh, that cast a pretty big shadow on the ground just to try and get a little bit of extra light toward the bottom of the tank. Um, so that would be, I, I really think that would be your largest consideration of, of you know, the tank itself. The other thing I would think is how you did your background. I mean, this all depends on the hardscape. There's really no considerations except mapping out where you're going to plant everything so that it gets light and it gets water. And if there's any divots in the background, is there any divots in the substrate layer to where water is going to pool more? Or do you have any very flat surfaces where water is just going to slide right down? Uh, we want to be aware of those, pardon my language, but topographical features uh, because we'll be using light and water in a way that we want to make sure that those plants that we plant there are going to be adapted for that kind of scenario. So 
we could plant a, something like a orchid, uh, just to make things really s- simplistic. Uh, we could plant an orchid on a branch uh, so that no water is pooling on the roots and the roots can wrap around because most orchids are truly epithetic, if not for hemiepithetic. So if we plant, let's say, an orchid on a branch, we're probably doing pretty good for ourselves as opposed to planting an orchid in the dark, you know, in a pool, you know, in a divot in the substrate. That's obviously going to rot out and die. So I think that's where some rudimentary knowledge can come in on plants. And then you kind of use that with your hardscape to plant your best tank. Yeah, when we talked about in the last episode about the scape, and I mean, a lot of the stuff in kind of like overlaps in different episodes. So like, you know, we, we talked about plant choices and we talked about scape and the same thing in the first part with Bill, we talked about some of the scaping and plant choices. But um, I mean, a couple of different options. I mean, since we have such a large amount of space, we, we obviously with the with this particular terrarium, the uh, Orinoco Grande, we have lighting that's... Um, an option on that where you can aim it at different locations, like spotlights, I guess, if you wanted to highlight a certain plant or I mean, like you, you, what you mentioned about the shadows is actually pretty interesting too, because I mean, I guess you could have like lower light dwelling plants down there as well. But I mean, we, we kind of, we kind of planned it in such a way that we would be able to play with a couple of different things and not necessarily have the whole tank be married to one like basic setup. So like, say we wanted to include a small drip wall, we could do that in a corner and then not have the whole tank be one big submerged mess. And at the same time, um, you know, we'd have usable areas for the frogs that might not necessarily be as wet, that might be drier. So, and we kind of, we kind of wanted to escape it in such a way that it would give us different options and be kind of as utilitarian as possible. But, I mean, do you think that that would, would work? I mean, would we be able to have a different variety, different varieties of plants. If we wanted to really kind of capture, like you know, multiple different little, I guess, micro environments, you could call it based on how the scape came out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the good part about having large enclosures, is because you can get those, for a better lack of a better word, microclimates uh, in in that enclosure. So you can kind of mess with a lot of different types of plants, low light, medium light, high light. If they need a lot of water, if they need less water, you can actually achieve all of those things in the same enclosure, which that's why large enclosures, in my opinion, are better than small ones. (laughs) I don't think anybody would argue that. Uh, We all want the walk-in vivarium or whatever, but you know, the bigger, the better. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the reasons. What are some plant choices that would be suitable for a large vivarium? And I know that's kind of a, that's kind of a loaded question, kind of a broad question. I, like, I'm sure like there's, there's like an infinite number of choices, but like, what are some, some picks that you would recommend to someone who would just gotten a tank this size? So I guess depending on how I set the tank up, if you have like a little water feature or something like that, you could do um, any of the boost plants. Uh, those those are aquatic 
small, typically small aquatic aeroids. Uh, those are really cool. They grow in really low light most of the time. Um, you can have a lot of low light plants on the bottom. So that's something I would take to the Libicia, the Emblemantha, the Selaginella, any of the, you know, the club mosses and things like that. Uh, those things would thrive in lower light conditions. Some of the begonias actually thrive in low light. It just depends on what, what kind they are. Um, and towards the middle, you know, you start getting into your larger aeroids. Uh, but again, you know, like I talked about before, you don't want to overcrowd your vivarium, even though it is a large one. You want to kind of limit your larger plants because I think some of those plants that are heteroblastic will actually start doing that thing <laughs> to where their leaves get to their mature forms or to their second form at least uh, and get quite large. So a great example of this is like the Queen Anthurium, uh, Anthurium warocuanum. Uh, I mean, the strap, the, the strap leaf. It can, it can get, I mean, easily 20 inches long. So you have to be aware, okay, if you have that plant in there, how much light are you going to be blocking from the bottom now? Because that plant is going to take over the, you know, it's going to, it's going to, everything is fighting for light. So you want to plant the tank with a lot of smaller stuff, in my opinion, rather than, a, you know, 10, 20 big things or things that potentially could get big because what will end up happening is the same thing we tell new people in the hobby when they get their first, you know, 18, 18, 24, and they plant all these stuff, you know, the stuff from Home Depot and Lowe's and everything, and it gets huge, and then it covers up the canopy, and then everything dies because there's no light penetration. Um we want to make sure that when we're in a large enclosure, that doesn't happen either. And I think a lot of people with large enclosures like that, myself included, get carried away and start planting a ton of aeroids like the philodendron and monstera. Uh, and those, those plants just get enormous. I mean, I hate to say it, but your tank is still too small for some of those plants. I mean, I had a marmoratum, which is a type of anthurium, and the leaf is literally three feet long. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that, that in, even in a display tank that's four feet tall, you're taking up, you know, 75% of the tank. Tank's height, at least. And you're blocking all that light. Now, is it beautiful? Of course it is. Um, but you could get a lot of other plants, like the miniature orchids, like uh, Stellis and Bulbophyllum and, and Restrepia and Pleurothallis, to kind of dot the landscape on all the branches and wrap it with mosses and uh, peperomia and a lot of a lot of beautiful small plants and it can really close in the look as opposed to just littering the tank with like huge philodendron just to fill it in. So I think a lot of the a lot of the diversity can be accomplished and a lot of the aesthetic can be accomplished if you stick to mostly smaller plants, even in a large enclosure. It's interesting because I, I mean, I tell you, my mind is blown because I never would have even thought of that. But the way you explain it is so matter of fact. And I guess, I mean, you're right. Cause some of the vivariums that I have that I put excessively large plants in, they just like, they killed everything else. They just, they outcompeted everything else for the light. 
And I see how it could be a problem if you have one excessively large plant in there. It, it, you're right. It's going to look like you have one giant plant just sitting. <laughs> sitting. It's like, I mean, you could do that outside. You could have a big potted plant out in your living room, which should do the same thing. But Right. And then yeah. that gets, you know, the sun and whatnot. Whereas you you really are still limited by your LED lights. So you have to be careful. And even with bromeliads, the placement is key. Because you want the bromeliads to absorb a lot of the light to get that lush color, but you also don't want them to be too big because then they block, you know, your light has to travel four feet down. That's a pretty considerable distance um, in, a, in an enclosure. So if you look on Instagram or any of the apps that kind of are picture related, you can see a lot of the... Uh, Japanese and Chinese viviscapes, most of them are fern-based. Most of them have small ferns, orchids, and mosses, and and a great hardscape. And that's what really drives it home in terms of aesthetics. You don't really see a lot of vivariums with high-density orchids, I mean high-density philodendrons and things like that. So... That's something to consider, that some of the nicest um, tanks kind of have that aesthetic to them. So let's let's go through a hypothetical here. So I want to hear, in your opinion, how you would personally stock a tank like this. And let's just say that all right, we're working with the Orinoco Grande. We have it scaped in such a way that we have a large focal piece of driftwood. Let's just say we've got like a massive piece of ghostwood in there that kind of resembles like a stump. Um, it's got a lot of like gnarled, you know, stuff going on. Um, and we've got three sides done in say, um, relatively flat. Uh, we'll, we, we kind of talked about was using like a sheet styrofoam or a pumice rock, something that's not going to have a tremendous amount of, um, you know, it's not going to have ledges and things like that. It's going to be somewhat, somewhat level in surface. So. And, um, oh, you know what, let's just throw a curveball in it. Let's just say that we're going to throw a little, a little drip wall in there. Um, not going to go into like a standing water, but say we have a little drip wall coming out of the feature too. How would you plant this thing? How would you start off and what would you kind of expect the outcome to be? So I guess from a standpoint of using my tank that is not currently done <clears throat> as a standpoint, I can actually kind of tell you what I've planned. So that's actually a pretty good, uh, pretty much like not exactly the hardscape I'm doing, but it resembles it enough. Um, so I am a fan of like cork bark mosaics where I put in sphagnum moss between cork pieces. Uh, if you're going to use pumice stone, that's totally fine. Um, again, I mean, you know, we're, we're, you know, it's it's, it's kind of going to be the same uh, outcome. So basically what I would start with is a moss slurry. So myself and others make a moss product that is, mine's water-based. I know any herbs is a water base as well. And it's just a bunch of blended mosses and fern spores, some vivarium plants that you know, or fragmented like Margravia and things like that. And we blend it all together and ship it to the customer. <clears throat> so if you get some of those and start throwing it all over the walls, all over the leaf layer, especially over the drip wall, 
um, that would be the first step to get you a nice coat of moss mix on the whole tank. And that's going to increase the chances of us getting some nice tropical liverworts and mosses growing in there. So some nice greens. After that, you would probably want to start planting the start planting like the smaller items, but you need to have your big plants kind of to the side and already placed. So what I mean by that is don't actually put them in, but know where they're going to go. So the, I guess the very first step after putting the moss is to kind of map out on paper what plants do you have, where are they going to go? Um, so, you know, I would probably stock maybe four or five larger species of aeroids. So something like maybe a anthurium, uh, vichii, maybe a... Uh, Crystallinum hybrid, a Forgettii hybrid, uh, maybe like an acutifolium because I really like those strapply philodendrons, um, something like that. Maybe even just those four, because again, those plants are going to all get very large if my parameters are right. So if my lighting's good, if my nutrient load is good, then those plants are going to get big. So I'm going to place those accordingly so maybe on the stump area i would place that acutifolium since it it almost shingles uh maybe a cincy mayensi or something another shingling philodendron uh most of the shingling philodendrons stay stay kind of small though so we'll we'll put those in with the smaller plants um but yeah once i place the larger plants in my mind i'm going to start planting um typically from the bottom up I, I would guess. So that's typically how I do it. So I'll start with the ground layer. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's, it gets kind of difficult because you don't exactly know what is going to get blocked. Because if you remember, all these plants are going to get bigger, right? So we have a potential for more light blockage. So over time, you may have to change the position of certain plants. So it may help to plant it from the top down. Uh, I've never done it that way. I just go at, you know, as I go about a month or two in, I kind of see how things are doing and then I adjust accordingly. I don't think anybody could plant it with 100% certainty and just know unless you're an absolute expert viviscaper, which I can't even say that I am. Um, you know, but yeah, so then I would place the smaller plants. I would place the orchids, all the stuff on the branches, kind of wrap up all the all the branches in like a in that moss mix, throw down the peperomias for some nice draping effects. Um, and then maybe place the brahms and then put the larger plants in. And then kind of just see how everything looks. You know, you, you make adjustments as you go. Because a tank that big, you know, like I said, you're going to have plants that are not going to do well. You're going to have plants that are going to kind of overtake others. So a lot of the walls, I would plant all my shinglers on the walls um, and then just kind of let it grow in. You know, a tank that big would need at least six months to grow in to get any idea of what is going to be successful so 
how long would you want to let the moss grow in before you introduced other plants? So that's the other thing. I don't even bother with that. I go right after I plant the moss because even if you let the moss grow in, you're just going to overshadow it and kill it later. You know what I mean? So you might as well just plant it all the way up. Sometimes I moss after I plant. Um, it, it Many times I do that. And that's just because I know that certain places are not going to produce moss growth. So why would I waste my time growing all this lush moss underneath this lip of the bark that's going to be overshadowed by an aeroid? You know what I mean? It it gives you a false sense of hope <laughs> that your whole tank's going to be covered in moss because your moss is not going to grow in pitch black. You know, typically some of the liverworts actually will. Um, <laughs> they They don't need that much light. So... It depends. It is funny, though, how moss, you, I feel like moss is one of those things that people covet so highly, and it's, 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 people love it, and it's amazing how you put so much effort to to get moss to grow and get established, and then something comes along and just outcompetes it, and it's it's gone. I had a really, really nice, yeah, I had a really nice moss, um, it was a moss slurry that I put on this, this tube of cork in one of my tanks and it took off and it was just, it was beautiful. It looked like a, a fallen log that just had moss growing all over it. And then some of my bromeliads ended up monopolizing all the light. And then, you know, exactly. I, that's I, my point. Yeah. <laughs> uh... I, I changed the misting cycle and then, and then it was gone. But, um, I mean, if, if you're selecting plants though, I mean, you've got all this extra space. Would you recommend starting with something that was, that was potted or clippings or, I mean, it's not like a small tank where you can just kind of put a clipping in and you'll you'll see it. What do you recommend, like for for how to get the plant started? That's the other thing. I mean, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with the cuttings and stuff. And the reason that I'm gonna go with that is because <clears throat> you kind of want to plant your tanks for six months out. That's what I tell people when they're looking to do their own vivarium. Um, if you get everything huge and already fully grown, um, it can help, but it's also really, it's going to be really hard sourcing those plants. And secondly, some of those plants don't grow, you know, some of the plants like shingle, right? So you have your Margravia. You, you can't just put Margravia on the back. You have to plant it in the ground and let it go up naturally because that's how you get the huge shingling effect all the way from the bottom to the top. So a lot of people want to cheat the system and use big plants that are already big, but then you miss out on all the kind of all the growth habit that happens, you know, from the bottom to the top kind of. So what I mean by that is like, if you have like an aeroid, that, you know, a philodendron varicosum, let's just say that, because that's a plant most people are familiar with in the industry. Um, If you plant one with like six leaves already, it's just kind of going to flop down, you know? It's, it's, the philodendron are too top heavy most of the time to like stand straight up. But in a tank, if you let that grow, 
those aerial roots are going to attach to the background or a piece of cork and just go up naturally. And you'll see every single leaf kind of like growing as it would in nature. So I think transplanting something that's potted, while it can be a good thing uh, because it's already large, you kind of miss the growth habit it would have it would have had inside your enclosure. Now, obviously, there are caveats. I mean, if you got like a big pot of Monstera Adensonii, let's just say you went to a nursery and you got like a 12-inch pot, nice and stocked, you know, because they fertilize everything, you're going to have a big, robust plant. There's no reason you can't put that in after stripping it, uh, you know, and having a large focal point plant in your tank already. But you also have to think, okay, if you're going to do that, then that tank is already six months ahead of everything else you just planted. So it's almost better to plant a lot of smaller plants that are like immature and just let everything grow in naturally, see what happens. And then you get to a point in your tank's maturity that everything looks right. If you start off something as cutting, something as fully mature, you know, something super big, a lot of the stuff is super small. What ends up happening is just this lopsided growth where, you know, your big Adensonii from Lowe's now is taking over your enclosure and killing everything else because it's already so big. Nothing else can kind of grow, you know, because it because it took up so much space. So I, I feel like it's almost one or the other kind of deal, you know, to some extent. Obviously, it's a huge tank. You could have something on the other side that are all cuttings, and it would be fine. But it would kind of look weird, you know what I mean? Just having, like, one super big established plant, and then everything else is a cutting. You know, <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. To me, I would rather have it grow in over time because it looks natural. You get all that growth phase from beginning to a year to growth and you can see how that grew in your tank it's interesting because my my tanks and again I, i'm i'm not a huge plant person and i found that the the there's like maybe like six or seven different plants that i use and i found that the tank really does evolve with time and the way that it looks six months ago i mean my oldest tanks my oldest current tanks have been up and running for about six years and I've noticed just how dramatically they change. Are you going to notice a dramatic change in a large vivarium or is it going to be a little bit more subtle? Meaning like I might have like, like I have a lot of ficus pamelia and then all of a sudden it'll just take off and it'll fill up everything and I'll cut it back mm-hmm. and it'll kind of die. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I know it's kind of a basic plant, but I mean, can you? Yeah, it's, it's aggressive, yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the plants I would kind of shy away from. If you're going to plant a display tank, you want something like species Borneo or Lancelet, uh, you know, species Panama, those ficus or, or Velosa, or even the hairy shingler, the new one. They're all slower growing, and they just look a lot better, and they don't choke anything out. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think. I think the changes are more subtle, but you also have to do maintenance on your enclosure. So having a big display tank like that and then just letting it go 
is not the way to do things. You can ask any professional aquascaper too. I mean, they're always in there trimming plants, uh, CO2 injection, moving this, moving that, replanting this, splicing that. You know, some of the plants, if you cut off the top of the plant, you'll notice that it starts growing outward into a bushier format. Uh, and that's just meristematic growth. So you can actually train plants to do what you want to some degree. Uh, there are definitely techniques that you can use. So I think the more knowledge people have about A, the plant choices that they made, and B, the techniques you can use to enact onto those plants, you're going to get a better scape that has longevity as opposed to just letting it grow, 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 never cutting anything, and then realizing it's just the same as 1824 that you let go for two years. Everything's going to race to the top. It's going to choke out. Everything at the bottom is going to die. And then you have like this weird tank that's just gutted at the bottom and has like this lush canopy layer. And it just looks silly. But if you had taken the time to keep your plants trimmed, you know, keep things growing in an appropriate way, you can kind of make the plants kind of not exactly do what you want them to do, but kind of do what you want them to do. You know what I mean? It's it's hard to explain, but you can definitely kind of train plants to make them fill certain areas uh, and then cut them out from other areas and make a tank very nice. You can look at any of the professional aquascapers and they do a fantastic job uh doing this kind of plant maintenance yeah it's unreal and you know what i just I, i'm a total idiot i think i said ficus pomilio and i totally i totally apologize it's, it's, it's ficus it's, okay. it's ficus pomilio right i yeah, yeah, yeah. i I, yeah, yeah. I i i'm gonna get razzed by someone i i totally no I, no it's okay i just um I don't know. Hey, look, we all make mistakes. That's, that's part of the process. But yeah, you, you raise a good point because I found that with my tanks, the biggest areas that I've been unhappy with have been this kind of really aggressive growth because, I mean, when, when I built these tanks, I had, to be honest, I really didn't plan it out. I, I just kind of did a very, very rough scape and I just sort of threw whatever else was in there. And then and over time I saw the way certain things grew and things died back and things came along and I kind of just became interested in the progression of it. I, I mean, when, when things died off, I was actually interested because I wanted to see what it would be replaced with because I mean, the tanks had been up for so long. I knew that it, you know, everything wasn't just going to die, but I mean, if you wanted to like, what, what are some plant choices to avoid? I mean, you, you mentioned um, the ficus. What are some other things that you want to that you really wouldn't want to put into a tank like this? Um, well, just like if there's anything you want to put in, there's a long list of things that I would keep out. Um, so I, I would try to keep it more concise. Uh, Ficus Pamilla is an obvious choice, uh, even though it is beautiful and it gets a really nice green background, you could achieve that with a lot of different species of Margravia, which would look exponentially better. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot more tropical, so to speak. <laughs> I hate to use that word so, so lightly, but, uh, um, 
Let's think. So a lot of the larger begonias, I think, would be something you'd want to avoid. So I have a lot of experience with begonia and any of the rexes or the, even even the hybrids. They, they just get huge. Uh, so you, you want to avoid things that are A, big, and B, aggressive. Uh, so let's see. I mean... There, there's not too many things. I guess, I guess I would avoid probably some of the species of costas in, in the tank like that. Uh, like Tappenbachianus is one that people are the most familiar with. The spiraling ginger, that one is so good for frogs. It is fantastic and it is a beautiful plant. But there are other species of costas that grow slower that would be nicer. Uh, and I think that one is just too aggressive. Uh, Begonia manaus, that's another one. That one's just just a, another big, aggressive begonia that is, just has hybrid vigor. It's just a really, really, really good at outshadowing other plants and taking too many nutrients. Uh, any of your epiprimnum, like your pothos varieties, I, I mean... This is going to get pompous, you know. This is going to get, oh, my plants are better than your plants. I I would just avoid the Home Depot plants. I mean, the only reason is because they... And they're Home Depot plants for a reason. They're cheap, they're popular, and they just... They're weeds. They're basically weeds. I would try and kind of shift toward and i hate to say this it's just the more expensive plants they're typically ones that grow slower and that's because that's how that works the slower they grow the more expensive they are because they're harder to propagate and sell so you have to think over time there are plants that have held their value pretty well because they're not weeds and i think you could you could probably be safer thinking that the more expensive the plant the better it would be for your tank. Now, obviously, that's there's huge caveats to that, but I, I think without trailing off into the abyss about what plants to avoid, I think that would be a better way to answer that question. Is I would just stick to anything between fifteen and fifty dollars a piece, because generally speaking, that's gonna that's gonna be your slower slower growers. Rather than all the five dollar plants, I mean, there's a reason they're five bucks. They're probably, you know, the Tretiscantia zebrina, so the wandering dude plants, any of the Tretiscantias, those are just huge no goes in a tank like that. They will swallow everything. Um, so, so hopefully that answers the question. Well, the other angle on this is, I mean, obviously this is this is a large tank. This is this is a substantial financial investment. And it's meant to be a showcase. Like, I mean, like one of the reasons why I'm not particularly like high on expensive plants is like num- number one, I'm you know I'm, I'm not made of money. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, they can get crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but the other thing is my even like my my quote unquote show tanks. I, I plant them really more. I, I want to say like utilitarian, really more for like the the frogs themselves just so they have cover and it looks, you know, it's just, I'm I'm not, I'm not a plant person. I just, it's, it's not my, it's not within my comfort zone. I mean, I would obviously like to be more aware of. You want to have balance too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You want to have balance between, you know, like that, like I said, that cost is 
is great for frogs. I mean, I have it in probably 70 or 80 tanks because it's great egg laying surfaces. The leaves overlap. I mean, you, you really can't beat it. Problem is the root stock is so big, you know, you go to rip it out and it rips your entire tank apart. So there's stuff to consider in a large tank when you're doing maintenance, how much maintenance do you want to do and what does it look like? So, Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to invest this much time and this much money, I mean, basically what I'm saying is, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to put any of the crap that I, <laughs> that I have in all my, just, you know, my, my, my grow out tanks and my non show tanks. And I mean, obviously I don't want to put anything that like that in there. So I mean, what you're right. saying, and that's what yeah. I meant. I didn't mean it like, you know, to be classist about like, you know, Oh, it's gotta be expensive to put in the tank, but, but you want to be aware of of that and i think the easiest way to explain it is that the cheapest plants typically are the fastest growing and those have the highest chance of choking things out and just making your tank look like a hot mess <laughs> and you spent a ton of money on this tank so you know what i mean you don't want to do that <laughs> yeah yeah well hey, look that that's why i had you on these are these are some of the questions that i had so i mean another question about about cuttings and clippings would you be able to establish, I mean, I mean, obviously it's a large tank. You're going to have to probably buy more cuttings, but would you be able to establish the tank off of a small number of cuttings? Or do you recommend getting a larger number of cuttings just because of the whole space, you know, whole size of the thing? I would say a large number, um, but it depends. I mean, if you're, again, if you're putting higher end plants in, you may not be able to get a large amount, you know, like some of the Slavdanella that I would use that I'm going to use. <clears throat> I mean, I only have one or two. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're hoping for the best when we plant this to make sure that everything grows really well. And if I see signs of decline, obviously I'm going to take it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, you want to start, I think. So, so let's just take a, a sidewall, for example. I think the best way to do this is to break it down into examples. So you, you have this wall and at the bottom of it, you could have a piece of, uh, let's just say Margravia rectiflora, right? Your basic green Margravia, pretty fast grower, pretty aggressive, but not like ficus pamilla aggressive. So we're still going to use it. Okay. So if you just had one lead, one lead cutting, so just one growth tip, what would happen is that that plant would just grow straight up the back, right? There'd be no branching. There'd be no, there'd just be one strip of Margravia, which is cool, but you want the whole thing to be covered with Margravia. So what you would do is take like a large portion pot uh, or what I would do, I would, I would take a ton of it and I would cut it up into little pieces. So I'd, I'd, I'd plant like 15 pieces of Margravia rectiflora just maybe two, two or three nodes worth, you know, just little, little shreds of them against the wall. And then when they hit their growth point, they're going to attach to the wall. Well, now I have 15 growth points and I have 15 leads or at least 10, let's say five of them die. Cause that's going to happen. Um, now you have 10 leads and the whole wall gets Margraviafied or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's kind of how you want to do it. So instead, you know, if you're if you're planting, uh, let's just say like a little gobinia section begonia, like a begonia maldonado, so like a shingling uh, begonia, 
you you wouldn't want to just plant one strand over there. You'd want to put like 10 strands just so you have a good starting point. Uh, so yeah, I, w- I would buy several cuttings. You wouldn't want to, you would want to get with somebody for this. Like if I was supplying you, let's just say a client called me and we're like, Hey Alex, like I, I I'm setting up this six by four by two. I need a plant package to do that. I would send them the appropriate, you know, the appropriate plants, but the appropriate number too. You know, you don't just send one unless it's a rare piece, you know, like a centerpiece or like a really rare, uh, sonorilla or something really beautiful plant. Um, you know, because you don't want a ton of the same plants either. So we want diversity in the tank, this size, but we also don't want it to be distracting. So you don't want everything to be like a color pop. You don't want color all over the vivarium because it's very distracting. You want mostly green with a few reds, a few purples, a few blues, and some pull, some hot towards the top. So some nice reds. And that would be really great. So that that's what I would say. I would say you, 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 can't really just start with one cutting but you also don't want to start with like one huge plant either like we talked about before so it's somewhere in the middle what about um you know i'm, I'm going to throw you a curveball here because i know we kind of already covered the hardscape aspect but uh i forgot to mention in the last episode one of the materials we talked about for doing the hardscape was tree fern panels do you have any experience with tree fern panels and would that affect the growth or plant choices as well if we did the background out of tree fern panels? So I have to ask what kind of tree fern panels are they? And do you know, are they the soft fiber New Zealand or are they the hard stick South American tree fern? That is a good question. I believe it's the New Zealand. And I say that because I bought... I bought a package of them maybe like two years ago and I sold myself and said, you know what, I'm going to save these for a nice build down the line. And I, I never ended up using them. I believe this is like really, really hard, stiff stuff from New Zealand. Cause it was, oh, re- is, it, is it hard and stiff? It's, it's almost like, um, I'm trying to think of it. I, I would, I mean, I'm, I'm in the studio now, but I would totally go downstairs and grab them. Uh, I don't. Is, is it like crunchy? Yes. If, if you crush it, it's oh, that stuff is the South American stuff. It that is stuff okay. Is, it's fantastic. That stuff will grow moss and liverworts and shinglers like a. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing better, honestly. Yeah, you could you could plant. Again, I would I would I would tell you to plant most of your shinglers at the base, so they have access to the nutrient pool in the substrate. So a lot of people like pin, you know, they pin their epiphytes to the, to the background. I don't really do that. I actually start everything in the ground and let it naturally climb. And again, that's why I told you I like to start from scratch. So when I build a new tank, it looks ridiculous because it's like, there's nothing to it except the hardscape and these little pieces of, of things. But then when it grows in, it looks fantastic and it looks like it's been growing for years. You know what I mean? Cause it has that, the, the coverage is immaculate. So it's the same principle. If you have those tree fern panels, you'd want to plant that like Margravia or those Raphidophoras or whatever you're going to use for your shinglers, pothos, even true pothos. If you have like Ovatifolius or Arbarianus or something like that, 
you could grow those plants up that tree from no problem. Oh, that's, yeah, that's encouraging because we, we were talking about all different materials. And I mean, the, the one material, if you guys remember from that episode, we kind of like sent to hell was the spray foam. We kind of decided that <laughs> I, I'm done with it. But we were talking about some of the sheet foam, like the stuff that you get at like a hardware store, the big, thick purple sheet stuff or um, or the tree front or the tree front panel. And it seems like one was really, really, I mean, you, if you cover foam with dry lock, or even like yeah. the, the peat stuff, it's not porous. It nothing can really no, grow plants, into it. Plants hate that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. That's why I typically, and not to cut you off, that's just why I use the uh, cork bark mosaics because cork bark plants absolutely love it, um, and they grow so well uh, across cork bark. So that's why I do all the mosaics. I, I've completely stopped doing dry lock. I, I absolutely despise dry lock. <laughs> One of my favorite tanks is my um, my paludarium, and I, I use a lot of cork in that with some spray foam. And the the moss the moss growth has just been great, like right along with right along the drift the drip wall rather. And I've been really happy with that. But um, to throw you one one last curveball here, this tank is big enough that we could do a partial paludarium setup. Do you have any experience with emergence? I mean, if we wanted to incorporate some aquatic or semi-aquatic plants, do you have any recommendations for that? Um, kind of like I said before with the boost plants, like any of the boosts are are pretty good, and those can be submerged. Uh, they can also be grown immersed. So I I, I don't have much experience with aquatics. Um those, those are classified as aquatic plants, though, so you could use those. They're also really good on drip walls, and there are tons of different species uh, and different kinds, hybrids. Um, but like I said before, I don't have that much experience with aquatic setups, and that's because I'm on team no, no water uh, when it comes to dart frogs, and most of my frogs are the obligates so they really don't need water uh but for like my amarega and stuff like that and my uh hylex alice those those are going to get water features so i think i'm going to venture into aquatic plants a little bit more so i'll i'll actually be learning a little bit alongside everybody else uh in that regard i will not be teaching you about aquatic plants because i don't know anything about them <laughs> yeah and, and you know i i should have really prefaced this like this this tank isn't necessarily designed for one particular species of frog so i i want since it's such a big tank I mean, there's lots of different choices. And in episode four, we're going to talk about some of the stocking options and different frogs that we could put in there that are not necessarily all dart frogs. So just, I mean, for everybody listening, I mean, we're kind of staying under the umbrella of like, you know, glass frogs, certain species of tree frogs, adelopis, um, you know, it really like to run a gambit. So, I mean, I know a lot of these things have different husbandry requirements and obviously we're not necessarily going to keep one the same as the other. That was why I kind of introduced the paludarium angle. Like if we were going to keep, say, Adelopis, which is like a riverside species, you know, our, our plant choices would be somewhat similar. But like I said, that's that's why I mentioned the um, the uh, water feature. Yeah, and I actually, my big display tank is going to be for Adelopis. So I'm actually right there with you. I actually have to do some research 
on some lower light uh, semi-aquatic plants because I am going to have pretty much half the bottom is going to be water. So I do have to account for that. And that's not something I've done. And that is why my renovation on that enclosure is not finished yet. So <laughs> I I hate to say it, but most people listening probably know that I'm a poison frog specialist and I don't differ. I don't really diversify much. Uh, I, I don't have many tree frog species. Uh, I don't have many, many things besides poison frogs at all. So that's just my bad not knowing that information. No, no, no. I'm, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just, um, you no, know, like, yeah, all. like some of the, some of the stuff that I mentioned throughout the, I mean, this is just kind of like a general build here. And, um, you know, we were just discussing different options. So I, I didn't want to, I mean, basically, basically I'm getting as I didn't want to freak you out with a water feature that it was <laughs> no. like, I'm not planning on building like a huge like, you know, six inch deep pond for like, you know, ob obligates or, or anything like that. But, um, I mean, do you, do you have any recommendations of like, I mean, we're going to get into, into stocking next week, but if you had this tank and you were going to pick frogs to put in it, what would your personal choices be? Oh man. Well, I've, I've tussled with it because like I told you several times now <laughs> i feel like i'm just a broken record at this point but i have the same tank size so i wrestled with it for a long time and i finally decided on either two two types i was either gonna do my hylix alice or which is a it is a type of poison frog or i was gonna do the adelopus i would really really like to do the adelopus barbatini from nick stacy he gave me some tadpoles and I didn't really have the best luck with that, but I also was really busy. So I felt like I didn't pay enough attention to them. Um, so I told him that and I was like, dude, I, I really just, I would love to just buy like 15 or 20 of the frogs from you. So I could stock this giant, you know, almost 400 gallon tank. Um, so I would, I really want to do those. I would say if you're doing a large vivarium like that, doing uh, that kind of species would be awesome. Or doing it like uh, Amarega. I mean, it depends on how much money you have, to be honest. I mean, you could do like a big group of chromes, uh, the Amarega uh, Basilarii, but you could also do like Silverstonii <laughs> if you have like unlimited funds. Let's just pretend. Because, I mean, a tank like that, you know, you're only going to really have one of those, I would assume. So if it's like you're going all out, I mean, you should really put whatever you love, love in there. Cause that size tank is good enough for just about anything frog wise. <laughs> yeah. It seems like if you were going to commit to an expensive tank and expensive plants and I mean, we're basically talking about the equivalent of having like <laughs> you're having like a Maserati in your living room here. Right. You're just gonna kind of look mean, at why it. Why not? Yeah, yeah. I'm always curious about what people's personal choices are, and I, I have never had any Adelopus. I just, I mean, my, my space wise, I'm kind of maxed out. I know that everybody out there always seems to have like an infinite amount of space, and everyone's always doing these builds. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm tapped out. I, I've run out of, I've run out of space. But, um, I mean, I'd love to have Adelopus in the future, and I feel like me personally, that, that's a species that I would want to really showcase. 
in this. Yeah. Like one of the Adelopus species. Either that yeah, or... Yeah, the Balios are pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I have Balios right now. And they're, you know, they're pretty active. I have a good group of them. I also have like a one-one pair that I keep by themselves. Um, but, you know, never had success with them. They've gone into Implexus a few times, but I just, you know, I don't have the Nick Stacy touch where I can just boom and then they lay eggs. Nick, I don't know how that guy does it. Nick is He's like a the wizard. Pa- He's like the patron saint of Adelopus. Like it is, it's like someone needs to <laughs> like write a book. Patron saint of frogs, just period. I you know can get anything to breed. I swear. I know someone needs to like write a book about Nick because the stuff that he's been <laughs> able to pull off is it, it, it's just like I mean I I remember Adelopus wild caught being on priceless years ago and then the the priceless it would disappear and whatnot. And I was I kept telling myself I'm like no one's ever gonna like this is never gonna happen. Never gonna happen. I mean. They've been around for years, and then one day, yeah. when when the the, the Balios uh, toadlets come in, they're really not frogs or toads, but like when the toadlets just came out, my jaw dropped. I was like, "Oh man," you know. And and then yeah. it was all it, it all snowballed for there. I mean, Nick's a great guy. I'm really happy that he had so much success. It's just that he, he's he's just re- he's really good at it. He's just like he's able to do things that us mortal people just can't do <laughs> so <laughs> that is correct yeah yep. <laughs> yeah I, I was thinking that maybe um a single i mentioned this last time it's kind of become like a running gag a single ranatomea um sirensis just one you know watch it like this you'll never see it again it'll just disappear never see it again. yeah nope. <laughs> yeah either that or a nice pair of costa rican erratus Oh my God. <laughs> Maybe 15 of them. Yeah. And then you get somewhere. Yeah. That's, I can't imagine. <laughs> I know. I know. That's like going into someone's wine cellar with like a, a bottle, a can of steel reserve in your hand, I guess. I don't know. But I, you know what? Look, it's, it's, everyone has different choices. People like certain things. And yeah, I mean, you could do a lot of yeah. stuff. I mean, even if you have the right sex ratio, you could do some obligates in there. The last time I kept frogs in my display tank, I had nine bastimentos in there. And, you know, because, ba- you know, you could do bastimentos or Rio Bronco or something with a lot of color variation in the phenotype. And it was awesome, man. I mean, there were, <laughs> there was like five males in there, so there was a lot of tussling. But it was it was entertaining at least. And I hate to put it that way because people are going to be like, Oh, you're not doing it for the animals and you're doing it for your own entertainment. And I'm just like, well, you know, I was keeping a really good eye on them. Uh, they were all fine. They're fat. They have a ton of, ton of problems. I mean, I probably had, I want to say like 20 bromeliads in there so they could always get away from each other, but it was great because they were always out and people would see them. They'd come in the facility and be like, oh, look at that one, call into that one. And I have several videos posted about that. So that was actually really cool because I had never kept a large amount of obligates in the same enclosure before, uh, generally because of said reasons for aggression. And, you know, just, just obviously you don't really want to do that unless you have a ton of space. You know, typically one ones are the best or one point twos. So, so you can do whatever. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, the, I mean, as much as we tell ourselves that everything is 
you know, the, the way it should be. I feel like, I mean, m- what my gut tells me is that frog behavior is going to vary based on enclosure size. And I mean, when you think about oh, it, I mean, 100%. Th- no matter what, how we justify it, you know, it, most of the common size enclosures that we buy, they're small, you know, I mean, the, the they frog, yeah, they're, frogs can live, yeah, frogs can live happily in them. I, I, I don't like to, I, I don't like to keep things in, in large groups in anything that's smaller than like a 36, you know, 36 by 18. But you have to ask yourself, you know, when you go up dramatically in size, I mean, there's going to be a substantial difference in behavior from an 18 by 18 cube to a, a four foot by six foot. So it must be interesting to see like like obligates or really any other species kind of engage in I guess more natural yeah. behavior because they have so much more space. I mean that that's a that's a yeah. huge tank. So you can't expect them to behave the same way they would, you know, in no, the equivalent of like like territory disputes and uh I mean, there was a couple females, so I had uh nine total frogs and I had five uh, five point four in there. And you could actually see some of the males and females would stay on certain sides of the tank. And that was super cool because you know that's a territory. And they were defending that territory inside an enclosure, which is absolutely crazy. And that's why I really fell in love with like the bigger enclosures. And I mean, I don't know what the future holds for the company, but... At my next facility, I want to build at least like 20 or 30 of those size tanks and just have species in there that can just really use the area. And us, I mean, I don't even know long term if we can like study things like behavioral mechanisms, if those kinds of things change based on sex ratios or other environmental uh pressures things we can you know i might be able to do experiments uh you know ex situ on frogs which would be super cool in big tanks like that so it's it's really it's really awesome and one day i want to build i want to build like a 20 foot enclosure uh at some point and kind of really gauge a multi-species biotope and kind of just look at the whole picture kind of in a box but who knows i mean that's me being selfish but you know well it, i it mean would, yeah i mean that's that's the whole that's the whole point though is i mean it we're, is we're, the we're, whole point <laughs> inherently it is selfish to even keep frogs so i mean we're we're keeping animals in the box so it's fine i <laughs> i i i acknowledge that hypocrisy the fact that you know people will say oh you're it in i know that there's a there's there's a a movement now towards putting everything in larger enclosures. And I, I don't see that as being a bad thing, but when you, you have to ask yourself, I mean, <laughs> yeah. anything that's going to fit in the average hobbyist house is regardless of whether it's an 18 by 24 or 30 by 36 by 36, it, it's still small. It's you know? still small. I yeah, mean, it, it, it is. Yeah. It's, it's not a, it's yeah. I, I'm, I'm not even, we don't even have to get into ethics about it because it, it, you can draw a line anywhere you want in the sand. I mean, it's the whole beach is open. So, well, you know, I, I just want to do my very best. Yeah. I just want to do my very best for the frogs that I can. And I think that if everybody thinks that way, that's as good as it gets, you know? 
yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I don't, I don't want to make it a whole big referendum. I just, a lot of times that there is, we look at things through a certain lens and I feel like what we kind of have in the hobby, um, you know, to, to upsize so dramatically, we might open us up to different possibilities in terms of different behaviors, different groupings. And I mean, like one of the things that people say is, um, you know, like issues with, with cohabbing, which I, I know is a, a contentious topic and people have different opinions on it. And yeah. um, <laughs> I, I don't like, I don't want to get into that either. But one of the the one of the often one of the common reasons that people justify cohabbing in a in a, you know, the average hobbyist size tank is. Well, I went to the zoo and or I went to the aquarium and they had this massive dart frog dart frog enclosure and they had all these species and locales together and my answer to that is well, I mean take the zoo take the zoo equation out of it altogether, you know, let's just it's a large enclosure and there are more places to hide, there are more there's there's more going on there. I mean, you and I going to giant stadium together you know, we're not going to be on top of each other that would be if, if we were like, you know, standing together in my closet. So I mean, right. with any living thing, behavior patterns are going to change. So, I mean, I, I know that again, like I, I don't want to, open, this isn't about any of that stuff. I'm not trying to address any of those topics, but then I mean, we do have to kind of agree that having a much larger tank is going to open you up to different possibilities that you wouldn't have in an average size hobbyist tank. Oh, for sure. And that's, that's the cool part is because, I've never had a large tank and then having that as of middle of last, you know, even before that, a couple of years ago is when that was built and it's been fantastic. I mean, I can't wait to get that Alopis in there witness, hopefully breeding. Uh, <laughs> we'll cross our fingers for that one, but you know, it, it is a very cool thing. And, and I think the, I, I really do think it's a positive in our hobby that we're going toward bigger is better. Yeah. And it just gives you so much more, it's so much more of a palette to work with too. Cause I mean, when you think about Absolutely. it, when you, yeah, when you stock an 18 by 18 by 24 and I mean, I just also want to just add, I mean, look, if anybody's using different sizes and closures, I, I don't want this to be a criticism or a referendum on anybody. You, you, you keep how you like, as long as it's consistent with, you know, what's, you know, what's accepted as, as appropriate. I mean, obviously don't stick like three frogs in like a two gallon tank. Don't do that. But, um, you know, cause again, not, it's not within everybody's budget and I'm not trying to sound like high on the horse, but of course, yeah. I feel like if you do have this opportunity, like if, if I were to, if, if, if I were to redo everything, like if I was to re- retire today and, and, you know, with my, my millions and millions of dollars that I'd have at my disposal, I would, uh, I would, um, I, I'd, I'd go for something like this and I'd want to really, really take my time with it. And I would just, I would rather focus on a single display tank to really get that impact that inspired me when I was younger. Like when I would go to the, the Baltimore aquarium or the Bronx zoo or whatever, and I would see these tremendous enclosures that inspired me. And that's something that I personally would, would want to do as, as the next level. Like if I was going to take this from where I'm, where I am now to a higher level. That's what I would want to do. So. Right. Same here. Even though I have over 300 tanks, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, again, I, I don't want to make it a referendum on like, you know, the, the size of the tank, whatever, but, um, you know, we're just kind of, we're just kind of exploring different possibilities, but, um, 
Yeah. I mean, hey, look, the, the sky's the limit, you know? I mean, how cool yeah. How cool would it be to, like, you know, walk into your house and, like, the first thing you step on is leaf litter and there's uh <laughs> maybe that's taking <laughs> it too don't, far. Don't play, Dan. It's yeah. going to happen one day. Well, let my 20-footer is coming. Let me ask you a question. When you go to a hotel or someone's house or whatever, and they have that walk-in stall shower with the clear glass and everything like that, is the first thing that comes into your head, oh, my God, I wish I could plant this and put frogs in it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> Me too. I think Me that's too. everybody, man. I think I think we all look at structures or cases or cabinets or literally anything, wine cooler. It doesn't even matter what it is. And we're like, how would that look as a tank? You know? What could I put in there? <laughs> yeah, I always, I always think about stuff like that. It's just every, every glass container that I see with four, <laughs> with with four walls. I think to myself, you know what, what would look good in there? <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, listen, Alex, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I, I want to thank you for your insights. You really. Um, I was honestly, I was surprised, you know, I was, uh, I was expecting large plants would be the way to go, to be the uh, way to go, but the way he explained it made perfect sense. And I think it's really given everybody out there a lot to think about if you're going to get into the whole, uh, large format vivariums that, um, you know, how important your plant choices could be just, especially in a, in a big tank and not to overdo it. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I, I, I must admit, I, I was, uh, I would have expected huge plants, but the way you say it, it's, it's makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and uh, I guess I, many years ago I would have, I would have not been the one to talk to about this because I would have been the person telling you, "Oh, plant this big one here and this big one here," and you know. So it's it's really come with wisdom uh, in me planting so many enclosures. I've really started to dial in on those smaller species to give it a good scale. I mean, you look again. I'll bring it up again. The aquascapers kind of capture that large that macro scale in a micro environment and i kind of looked at that and i was like man that that looks so cool it looks like a mountain range in that little 30 gallon tank and i'm like that's really what all the good vivariums resemble too not to the exact scale but to some degree you don't see a lot of the most beautiful vivariums covered in large plants because you wouldn't be able to see anything. So I think there's a great balance you can achieve between large and small uh, plants to make something tie together very aesthetically and also be good for the inhabitants as well. That's, that's very well said. Definitely. Um, yeah. Aesthetics is important. You're right. And especially with something like this, you're going to want to, you don't want to have a nice finished product. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well, all right, Alex, you're still at frogdaddy.net, right? Your website? Yep. Unfortunately. <laughs> I know. That's, We're I'm still re- fighting for that dot com, but that guy is stingy, man. Oh, man. Uh, well, maybe he'll listen to reason at some point, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right. not paying him five grand. I, I'm not doing it. He's he's gonna have to back down at some point. So yeah, it's frogdaddy.net for now. Give him a, give him some plant clippings. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's after that, man. <laughs> I think Maybe. he's after some cash. Oh man, <laughs> uh, that's a whole. I got I I, I got to talk to you after the show's over about that because that's I'm just like I'm just picturing this guy being like a cartoon villain, like you know, like wringing he his is. hands, like I've got the man now. 
<laughs> I mean, he, he keeps raising the price too every year. Well, and I'm just like, you know what? I really just have to bite the bullet and do it because he's going to keep doing it. Well, I mean, your business oh. is really successful. So, I mean, you think it's at some point, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I started, I, um, I, I mean, I really shouldn't say anything cause it's not live yet, but I've started a website and uh, I paid for the, the .com. And it's funny because when I, when I looked at the, the .net, it was much cheaper. And then like, oh, yeah. I thought to myself, I was like, it's like, eh, like the .com is going to be, be it's, it is amazing though. Just how something simple as like .com versus .net or .org, like how much that can change oh, the my perception God, of a website. Consider- very considerable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting business thing, but it is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, listen, everyone. I want to thank Alex for taking the time to come on and talk to us about plants and uh, you know how to how to work out the dynamics of, of the build this big. And uh, I hope everybody appreciated it. I know we we touched on some frog choices, but um, I want you to stay tuned for episode four, which is coming up. It's going to be the final episode where we're going to wrap up and talk about some possible stocking options in terms of which frogs that we would maybe want to put in, which things might be appropriate, and maybe tweak a couple of things here and there. But it's going to be a lot of fun. I've already picked out a couple of species in mind, and I've got a great guest who I will I will announce when it's time. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for part four. It's coming up soon, and I will talk to you all next time.